This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Okay, thank you. Uh, I just had a nice laugh with a, one of the priests here. I was talking to him outside. He asked me what the theme was for the day, and I said it's kind of a triduum thing. So he said, um, you know, it's Easter, right? <laughs> so I said, yeah, yeah, you know, it's one of those things. But, but uh, I know we're done with Lent, you know, but um, still, we never want to leave the cross behind. So I begin by drawing your attention not to the Gospels or the New Testament, but to classical literature, specifically Homer. A strange place to begin a reflection on Christ's suffering and our participation in it, though perhaps not. I hold up for your consideration perhaps the most celebrated scene in all of Homeric literature. And if you've read the Iliad, you'll certainly recall it. I'm speaking of the moment towards the close of the Iliad, when the Trojan War has neared its end, and the elderly and frail King Priam of Troy, cloaked in secrecy and abject lowliness and exposed in his frailties and vulnerabilities, comes at night to the tent of his arch-nemesis Achilles to beg for the dead body of his son Hector, whom Achilles had slain in a vengeful rage. And Achilles would not relent in his rage, refusing to hand over the deceased body of Hector, thus denying Hector rest in the underworld, and thus disgrace to Hector's family. Priam enters the tent of the petulant Achilles, the Achilles whom Homer here describes as, quote, without a shred of decency in his heart, whose temper never bends or changes, like some lion going his own barbaric way a man given to brute force and wild pride, and who has lost all pity, end quote. Suddenly and astonishingly, this same Achilles relents, and the theretofore arch enemies share a touching human moment. Achilles weeps with Priam when the Trojan king entreats him to remember his own father. Remember your own father, great godlike Achilles, says Priam, as old as I am, past the threshold of deadly old age, pity me in my own right. Homer continues, these words stirred, Achilles, stirred within Achilles a deep desire to grieve for his own father. And overpowered by memory, both men gave way to grief. Priam wept freely, and Achilles wept himself. Then Achilles raised the old man by the hand, Priam, Priam had been clutching him by the knees, and filled with pity, now for his gray head and gray beard, he spoke out, Poor man, how much you've suffered, pain to break the spirit. Come, let us put our griefs to rest in our own hearts, and recall that it is the lot of man to suffer and feel sorrow." End quote. It's as if encountering the vulnerabilities of another moves us to let down our guard, to drop our pretenses, our many layers of makeup, of defenses, our filters, our petulances, and to recognize our own vulnerabilities, to recognize our <coughs> naked humanity laid bare. 
There is a visceral sharing of a common humanity precisely on account of the recognition of shared vulnerabilities and weaknesses, of shared sufferings. And that's why I begin here with Homeric literature. Since common human experience, going back as far as Homer at least, testifies to the fact that frailty, vulnerability, and suffering touch us at the core of our humanity. And we find the same kind of witness in that other celebrated poet of classical literature and Virgil, whose great epic Aeneid is anchored in the sufferings and hardships of Aeneas. The opening lines of the Aeneid expressly state that Aeneas was made, quote, to brave such rounds of hardship and to bear such trials. That is, that Aeneas was made to suffer and that he was defined by his suffering. Because Aeneas was forged by suffering, he could in turn recognize the humanity of a fellow sufferer and of the corresponding need to show mercy, even if that fellow sufferer were a Greek, that is, an enemy. We find this presented in a wonderful scene in Book 3, when Aeneas and his fellow Trojans, adrift at sea, approach the island of the Cyclopses, and they happen upon a man whom Virgil describes as, quote, all but starved to death and wretched condition. The wretched man sees them from the shore and begs for mercy. He begs them to rescue him from the torments of the Cyclopses, though he flatly confesses that he doesn't deserve it since he is a Greek who, quote, fought to seize their household gods. After hearing his story of hardship and suffering, Aeneas extends him mercy and takes him, a Greek, aboard as, quote, he had earned his way. Earned it, that is, through his suffering. Again, shared grief gives way to a shared humanity and to the extension of mercy. These scenes from classical literature testifying to suffering, touching us at the core of our humanity, remain perennially relevant to us today. Put more directly, the scenes between King Priam and Achilles and between Aeneas and the stranded Greek warrior, I'd like to suggest, continue to play out every day in our own lives. Consider, for instance, how often we find ourselves moved at a kind of visceral level, stirred in our very depths by compassion and sympathy when we encounter the grief of another person. I see this every day with my children, how they're constantly drawn to my son with cerebral palsy. They're truly drawn to him. More on him later. When we come upon a friend or an acquaintance and learn that this person is suffering in some kind of acute way and is bearing an oppressive infirmity, do we not feel stirred deep within and that our hearts immediately go out to the person as a result? There is an undeniable experience of a common humanity when there is a human encounter amidst vulnerabilities and griefs. And yet, though for all this common testimony of suffering as a powerful shared human experience, that it is the lot of man to suffer, nothing confounds and perplexes us more than suffering, human frailty and infirmity. After all, though it be the lot of man to suffer, and though shared griefs might bind us in our common humanity, it begs to be asked, what real meaning is there to be found in suffering? Suffering, we cannot deny, is an evil, an evil in its metaphysical sense, a privation or absence of a good that should be present. 
And the Genesis creation narrative makes clear that God never intended human beings to suffer. The confounding mystery of suffering is especially the case for our culture, which flees from frailty and suffering, pushing it aside and escaping from it, unable to find any sense and meaning in it. What else, after all, is the ever-increasing demand for assisted suicide expressive of than an inability to find any meaning or dignity in infirmity and suffering? Allow me to suggest... We are less the inheritors of Homer and his understanding that it is the lot of man to suffer, and of Virgil and his appreciation that our suffering binds us together in our shared humanity. Instead, we are more the inheritors of Descartes, the father of modern philosophy, and this in two respects. First, inasmuch as Descartes relegated the body and all things associated with it, decay, infirmity, frailty, to the category of the subhuman. I quote Descartes, The soul is that by which I am what I am and is entirely distinct or separate from the body. End quote. Second, we as a culture follow Descartes in his determination, quote, this is Descartes, to make ourselves the masters and possessors of nature in order that we might be free of the innumerable illnesses of the body and perhaps even the decline of old age. That is, death itself, end quote. Both aspects of this Cartesian outlook have seeped deep into the well of contemporary thought and have led us to have an utterly hostile attitude towards suffering, infirmity, decay, relegated as they are to the subhuman and to that which we must seek to master and subjugate. We must not accept suffering as our lot, but seek instead to eradicate it from our existence, be free of it, to use Descartes' language. Suffering stands out as a kind of glaring exclamation point on the frailty, the limitations, and vulnerability of the subhuman body. Suffering reminds us manifestly that we have yet to attain Descartes' goal of overcoming the illnesses of the body and even death itself. Now, to be clear, we should recall that St. Thomas does point out the paradoxical nature of suffering, infirmity, and decay. On the one hand, they are natural to us as owing to our body, which is, to use his words, composed of contraries. That is, because we own a material body given to corruption. On the other hand, suffering, infirmity, and decay belong to the reatus poene. That is, to the post-lapsarian state of punishment due to the sin of our first parents. Aquinas writes, Death and decay are both natural on account of our condition pertaining to matter, or to the body, and penal on account of the loss of the original divine favor preserving man from death and decay, end quote. Suffering cannot be divorced from the sin of the beginnings, says Pope St. John Paul II in Salvici Dolores. The paradox, then, is that suffering, infirmity, decay, and death are both natural to us and they mark an evil, though not a moral evil. After all, what else is suffering, decay, and death but a failure of human nature to attain what God, the author of our nature, had initially intended us to attain? Infirmity and suffering signal that our present condition falls short of what God intended for us when he created us and which our first parents enjoyed. 
As John Paul II puts it again in Salvici Dolores, the human being suffers when he ought, in the normal order of things, to have a share in this good of his nature and does not have it. Which brings us to the New Testament, that is, to Christ. Christ, God become man, comes to meet us where? Precisely in our weaknesses and sufferings. Indeed, Christ plumbs the depths of human frailty, canonically embracing a life of certitude and suffering to the point of even death on a cross. And I'm referencing there to the famous hymn to the Philippians by St. Paul, in which he speaks of the Son of God emptying himself. The Greek word is kenosis. And so this adjective kenotic means to empty oneself of what one otherwise has a right to hold on to. Like King Priam, Christ comes to us in weakness and vulnerability. He comes cloaked in abject lowliness and frailty. And it is in our own weaknesses and vulnerability, in our shared griefs, to use the words of Achilles, where we shall meet him. Yes, in King Priam, we see a faint echo of, and even aspiration for, the kenosis of the Incarnation. But it is a quite faint echo and aspiration as Christ's kenosis fulfills this aspiration in a decisively new and completely unimagined way. Christ is no mere recycled King Priam, nor Priam on steroids. No, there is a much greater than King Priam here. Christ comes not to beg for mercy, as did Priam, but to grant us mercy. Christ comes not as our enemy, as Priam was Achilles' enemy, but as our brother, burning with superabundant charity. Christ comes both to share our griefs and to redeem and transform our griefs, thus giving profound meaning to suffering. Christ alone provides the answer to the riddle and mystery of human suffering, frailty, and death. In him, the weakness of the human condition receives its full meaning. Christ explodes our understanding of suffering and infirmity, turning them on their head, thereby giving human suffering, quote, a new depth and a new realism to, quote, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger. We heard him before, before he became Pope Benedict XVI. <clears throat> this new depth and new realism is revealed in the whole course of Christ's life, which was a life of unending suffering, beginning with his being hunted by Herod when he was a baby, continuing with the misunderstanding and cursing he faced in his public ministry, and culminating, of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane and on Calvary. Often in Byzantine and medieval iconography, in images of the Nativity, you'll see something of Calvary represented in the image, precisely to show this direct line from Christ's birth to his death, that his death on the cross marks the culmination of his whole life's purpose. So let's talk about Christ's passion and death. Ratzinger Benedict points out the paradoxical fact that though on the cross Christ had, quote, no comeliness that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him, Isaiah 53, 2, Christ remained all the same and in that very moment on the cross, quote, the fairest of the sons of men. That's Psalm 45, 2. Christ on the cross reveals a new and higher beauty. What else would explain how it is that we turn the crucifix, it's in itself a hideous display of torture, malice, and cruelty, into beautiful artistic displays? I have a beautiful Baroque 
depiction of the crucifix in our dining room. And what else would explain why we call the day on which the Lord died Good Friday? Artistically, beautiful crucifixes give their own witness to the fact that in the hideousness of the crucifixion is yet revealed a higher beauty, as well as a higher wisdom and power, despite its face value, folly, and weakness. To advert to the Pauline notion of divine folly in 1 Corinthians, where, of course, Paul explains that what at first sight is utter folly and weakness to human eyes, namely a death and a, a, an excruciating, ignominious, humiliating death at that, is there any greater witness of the limitations of human nature? If we're saved by that, it can only be by a divine power. It can only be by God, and thus a higher wisdom to what otherwise seems like folly. Thus, when in his resurrected body, to anticipate the final talk for today, Christ shows the apostles the wounds in his hands and side, he shows them his beauty marks, or his power marks, since, quote, by these wounds we are healed, 50, Isaiah 53, 5. Here, then, is the final and full answer to the mystery of human suffering. By his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed. In the cross of Christ, suffering serves as an instrumental cause of human redemption. Christ gives redemptive power to human suffering. Now here's the money line, particularly with respect to the other half of the title of this talk, namely suffering in the church today. Christ grants us a share in his sufferings and thus a share in his beauty marks, a share in his power marks, a share in the redemptive power of his suffering. How exactly does this occur? How is it that we share in Christ's sufferings? St. Thomas provides us with a key theological reason and it is an ecclesiological one. It's the doctrine of the one mystic person. St. Thomas writes, this is in the third part of the Summa, the head and members of the church are as one mystic person, and therefore Christ's redemptive power and efficacy belong to all the faithful as being his members. End quote. We form one mystic person with him, since we are members of his body. By baptism, we are grafted on to Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches, and apart from me, you can do nothing, says Jesus in John 15, 5. So what this means is Christ piggybacks, as it were, our suffering onto his on the cross. The church came to the realization that the suffering of its members is identified with Christ's suffering at its very inception, specifically at the dramatic turning point in the growth of the early church. And speaking of the wondrous moment of Saul, Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, which was in fact recounted for us at Mass yesterday. Recall Saul, Paul, is on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians and haul them back to Jerusalem in chains, when, quote, suddenly a light from heaven flashed about him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That's Acts chapter 9. At first sight, this strikes as a strange, even nonsensical response. First of all, 
Jesus was a historical person, and the persecution that he endured was a past event. Whereas the risen Jesus here identifies himself as the object of persecution as if it's happening in the present moment. Second, how can Jesus, a specific individual with a unique personal identity, extend his personal identity to others? Personal identity, unique personhood, is precisely what we don't share. While we all in this room share a common human nature, what we do not share is the fact that we are individual personal instantiations of that shared nature. I'm Paul, so I'm not you, Bob or Pete or whatever. I'm not you, Sam. I'm not you, Mary. But here's the difference with Jesus. He's no human person. He's a divine person, the divine person of the Son, though truly human. As a divine person, he has the power to graft his disciples onto him in his glorified humanity. He has the power to extend his glorified humanity to his baptized followers, such that they become identified with his glorified humanity, with his own body. So the title of the church as the body of Christ, it's not a mere metaphor or a convenient label for a religious social club. It is to be understood literally. The church is no mere social club. It is a living, organic, unified body, the body of the Lord. What was visible in Christ has passed over into the church, writes Pope St. Leo the Great. We are Christ's hands, his eyes, his mouth, says St. Teresa of Avila. So he's not just up there eating pizza, you know, <laughs> at the right hand of the Father, tuning in every now and then on earth when someone calls upon a name. He remains present and active, not simply spiritually, but physically on earth through the church. And to return to the words of the risen Lord to St. Paul, or to Saul, note the identification of the church with Christ in direct reference to suffering. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. We can put it this way. The church as the body of Christ is born from the pierced side of the crucified Christ, from which flows the church as outflowed water and blood, and from which sprouts forth the branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. This means we, the branches, sprout forth from the pierced side of Christ the vine. We, are, we, as the branches, are grafted onto Christ's pierced side. This makes us most properly, then, one mystic person with the crucified Lord. This means we cannot simply observe Christ's sufferings from a distance or walk merely alongside him. We must identify and remain united with him in his suffering and to the very end. Only in this way can we share in the redemptive power of his suffering. Like Christ, our suffering carries meaning when we, in our turn, are scorned and rejected, thought foolish or made poor in the passing riches of this life. When we face trials, no matter how small or trivial, the betrayals, the calumnies, the disappointments, the losses, the little cuts, the paper cuts, the stub toes, the sorrows. But let me stress it again. Because we form one mystic person with Christ, he confers redemptive power on all human suffering. He piggybacks our suffering onto his and thus gives our suffering redemptive power. And the greater the suffering, the greater the participation in Christ's redemptive power. 
Provided, though, that we unite our sufferings with Christ. Again, apart from me, you can do nothing, John 15, 5. Apart from Christ's sufferings, our suffering means nothing. It's just an evil. Our active cooperation with Christ's suffering is an essential component here if our suffering is to be redemptive. So when we find that we are suffering, do we bear it apart from Christ with bitterness, like the unrepentant thief next to Christ on the cross? Or do we bear it with Christ, first with grim resignation, like the repentant thief who said it was what he deserved, but also and especially with love, like Jesus? So now we're in a position to understand those passages in the New Testament that bespeak the wonder and the beauty of the suffering of Christ's members. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Acts chapter 5, verses 40 to 41. When the Jewish Sanhedrin had called in the apostles, they beat them for having preached in Jesus' name and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The letter of James, chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Take note of this, at first sight, bizarre attitude towards suffering, namely this joy this rejoicing and this gratitude in our sufferings, this counting oneself worthy to suffer? Are Christians gluttons for punishment and worthy to suffer? What is going on here? Yes, worthy to suffer, because worthy to be likened to Christ on the cross, and thus worthy to turn suffering toward redemption. We must never forget this, because it's easy to forget. Our suffering, no matter how minor, works to our improvement. Steadfastness, as the letter of James puts it, it works to our sanctification. It works to our redemption. One finds this principle running as a common thread among the great saints of our tradition, among our great spiritual masters. Let me cite a few of them. St. John Chrysostom. Let us bear all things thankfully, be it poverty, be it disease, be it anything else whatsoever, for he alone knows the things expedient for us. Are we in poverty? Let us give thanks. Are we in sickness? Let us give thanks. Are we falsely accused? Let us give thanks. When we suffer affliction, let us give thanks. Affliction is a great good. Narrow is the way, so that affliction thrusts us into the narrow way. He who is not pressed by affliction cannot enter, end quote. The cross, our burdens, trials, afflictions, define the narrow gate, the only path to purification, healing, and hope. Wide is the way to ruin, and this path is paid by comfort, 
ease, shirking suffering, pursuing wealth at all costs, pursuing bodily pleasure and comfort as highest goods, escaping suffering. St. Catherine Drexel, quote, Life is marked by suffering. The poor suffer, the great suffer. Everything that is painful to the flesh, displeasing to the senses, is a cross. Embrace all these little opportunities of suffering, and you will be bearing the cross of Christ, end quote. Mother Mary Frances of Our Lady, a poor Claire nun who died in 2006, Well, we have a duty to relate our little disappointments to the sufferings of Christ's passion. We, for our part, will never sweat blood like Christ did. We shall never be nailed to a cross. It is very unlikely that anyone will ever spit in our face. It is extremely difficult to imagine that anyone would ever strike us on our cheek. We shall not have to carry a cross and fall under it. We shall not have nails through our hands. But we shall always have little things to suffer. We must not allow ourselves to forget that he knows them all. He took them upon himself. St. John of God, quote, You must offer God deep thanks for everything, both the good and the bad. Remember, our Lord Jesus Christ and his blessed passion recalled how he gave back good for the evil they did to him. You must do likewise. End quote. St. Therese of Lisieux, quote, I desire only one thing, and it is to suffer always for Jesus. Life passes so quickly that really it must be better to have a very beautiful crown and a little trouble than to have an ordinary one without any trouble. And then for a suffering born with joy, when I think that during the whole of eternity, I will love God better. Then in suffering, we can save souls. Ah, if at the moment of death I could have a soul to offer Jesus, how happy I would be. It would be a soul that would bless God for all eternity, end quote. Note the insight of St. Therese, that suffering expands our heart. It helps us to grow in love and charity. And if our heart grows, that means our heart can be filled with more love. That is why the great saints are happier in heaven. Not that all aren't happy, but that the saints have bigger hearts and thus a bigger fulfillment of their hearts relative to those with smaller hearts. You know, it's like the 8-ounce glass versus the 16-ounce glass. Finally, let me address the first line of the title of this talk, Making Up What is Lacking, which, of course, is a reference to St. Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, And in my flesh, I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Since the redemptive power that our suffering enjoys is purely and simply on account of Christ wanting us to play this active participatory role in his suffering, it follows that the lack of which Paul speaks is also on account of Christ's will. To explain, in itself, of course, there's nothing truly lacking in Christ's suffering. Indeed, Aquinas reminds us in his Eucharistic prayer, Adorote, that, quote, one single drop of blood shed by Christ would have sufficed to redeem the entire world. What is going on here, then, is that Christ wills that there be a lack. He wills his suffering to remain open-ended, half full, with more space, so that we can fill it 
so that we can complete it. He doesn't want to keep the dignity of being an agent of redemptive suffering all to himself. He wants us to share in this dignity and nobility as well, that we become secondary agents of our own redemption and the redemption of others. Secondary, because always dependent upon and instrumental to the primary agent of our redemption, Christ the Lord. As when I'm writing, say, on a board, I'm the primary agent of the writing. The pen or the marker is the secondary instrumental agent of the writing. Thus, that Christ sheds an entire pool of blood, even though one single drop of blood would have sufficed, this pool of blood, it represents the suffering of all his members. Again, worthy to suffer because made worthy to share in the dignity of being an agent of redemption. I cite Catherine de Huck Doherty, founder of Madonna House Apostolate. We too must be crucified. We must go through the suffering he has gone through. This is his great gift to us, that we make up what is wanting in the suffering of Christ. Colossians 1.24 Nothing is really wanting in the suffering of Christ, but he allows us to partake of it. The path is clear. Christ made it. We cannot miss it. There are drops of blood along it in the sands of time. We must follow them, end quote. Now, lest I be remiss, suffering in itself, again, is an evil. It's repugnant to us. So it's not as if we enjoy our sufferings or, like Job, wonder aloud to God, why? You know, there's a famous story of Teresa of Avila getting knocked off her horse and remarking out loud to God, if this is how you treat your friends, no matter you have so few. But these consternations and limitations of our understanding are also part of our suffering and are making up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. Mindful that the greater the suffering, the greater the participation in the redemptive power of the cross, I close on a personal note, observing how I have beheld this new depth and new realism that Christ gives to human suffering in the great cross that he has given to my son with cerebral palsy. So my son, his name is Dominic. There is not one moment in his life when he has not known the cross. He has only ever known the cross. Since the very moment he was born three and a half months premature and weighing one pound, 11 ounces, his life has been nothing but a perpetual self-denial. Though completely unimpaired cognitively, Dominic can do nothing physically without assistance. He can move his body and all his limbs, but nothing intentionally. He requires assistance for everything, to get dressed, to be displaced, to sit, to eat and drink, to move about the house, to take a shower, to stand, etc., And how does he respond to this life of perpetual and constant self-denial, to this way of living the cross every moment of his life? How does he, who is not cognitively impaired at all, respond to his having to wait to get out of bed, to wait to to, uh, eat, to have to eat in the manner and speed chosen by the one feeding him? He's a growing boy who burns calories nonstop all day long, so he has a ferocious appetite to his having to wait to listen to an audiobook, and I can go on and on and on. How does he respond? With incredible patience, with the patience of Job. He puts up with self-denial with exemplary patience, almost never showing signs of frustration, impatience, or annoyance. And what is he like on the inside? His soul is radiant. 
recall, the greater the sharing in the cross, the greater the sharing in its beauty. And I can assure you, the beauty that radiates from my son's entire persona, precisely on account of his disability, it's truly remarkable. Beyond the patience, there is an endearing sweetness of soul in him, a joy, a playfulness, a most considerate kindness, a sense of gratitude, a palpable geniality, a deep empathy for others, an innocence, a raw honesty, a simplicity, an indomitable work ethic and determination, a high tolerance for pain and discomfort, a brightness in his eyes and in his face, an infectious smile. I could go on and on. Everything is so raw in Dominic. There are no pretenses, no filters, no facade, just a naked humanity laid bare amidst his vulnerabilities. Put simply, when I'm with Dominic, I feel like I am on holy ground. I, when I look at his face, I feel like I am beholding the face of God himself. I really do. I feel like I am in the presence of God. And why not? Since I'm in the presence of the cross. This is difficult to describe, and I don't wish it to sound sentimental or put on, but I'm convinced I live with a saint, indeed a great saint. This is the gift of suffering, of great suffering, a sign in its own way of divine favor. Useful to remember when we feel inclined to repeat with Teresa of Avila in the face of suffering, if this is how you treat your friends, no matter you have so few. Thank you. I'd be happy to have conversation now. Yes. Okay, <laughs> there was a remarkable event in my son's life. Uh, it happened on Easter Sunday. Uh, it was the um, Easter Sunday after Pope Francis was elected Pope. And um, so he had been elected just two weeks before. So this was his first Sunday. So all the media were in Rome. I was actually in Rome. Uh, Providence College has a Rome program. So I was teaching there for the semester. And uh, uh, so it's Easter Sunday. All eyes are on this newly elected Pope. And um, so when he was touring St. Peter's Square afterwards, um, there was, um, so there's, there's special seating at the Vatican for um, persons with disabilities, with special needs. And um, so my wife was there with him. And an usher had taken note of my son during the Mass. And so when the Mass was over, knowing that uh, the Pope was going to do a tour of the square, he told my wife, said, <laughs> Bring the, bring the bambino, bring the boy. And, uh, um, uh, we're, you know, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get this boy to meet the Pope. So, uh, so the Pope comes to do a, uh, you know, he's doing his tour, and the usher has, has my wife and my son situated right on the route. And just as, uh, the, as the Pope is passing by, he actually turned in the other direction. So he passed him by. So the usher, you know, he... Um, he uh, Turned to my wife and said, you know, I'm sorry, I did what I could. But we didn't know it at the time. We were still learning you know, what Pope Francis was like. Um, turned out he's a, he's a crowd person, so he, he, he did a second tour. Right? <laughs> so he comes around for a second pass. And uh, the, the usher this time kind of stuck, you know, placed himself right in front of the, of the Pope mobile so that he couldn't miss him. And um, so the Pope uh, 
uh, actually um, picked up my son and embraced him. And there were pictures, and it went viral. Uh, it was all over the internet. He became very famous, and uh, my wife and I were, uh, were we gave interviews the whole week of Easter. Um, and uh, for a little while, you know, when I would give talks, I would introduce myself as the father of that boy, you know. Um, but the thing is, is it, it moved everyone because, well, a couple of things. Um, so my son, I, as I said, he has very severe cerebral palsy. Uh, and so intentional movements, you know, we all, you know, just sitting in a chair as you're sitting, we just take it for granted. Uh, it's, it's how the body normally develops. It's how, it's how the brain normally develops. And, uh, and so what we do is, you know, we engage certain parts of the brain to know just, you know, how to sit. And we, we naturally kind of look in the middle, call it midline. When you're writing, you, you, uh, your brain tells your hand, signals to your hand, just the right kind of pressure, neither too much nor too little, and, and so on. Well, my son is unable to do all these cerebral palsies. It's, it's like, a, think of it as, as roadways being washed out, you know? So, so the intentional movements for him are very, very, very difficult. And uh, when the Pope held him up, he actually put his arm around him. I can count on my one hand the number of times that's happened. And he had this, this he has a beautiful smile. He just, you know, he really, he's got, he has a brightness, a countenance to his face and his eyes. There, there is just such a brightness in his eyes. And um, it was a moving, you know, uh, believer and non-believer alike were moved by this encounter. An old man in the person of the Pope and this young body, boy with uh, uh, such a frail body. And, you know, it's, it's like that, you know, that Priam Achilles sort of thing. This, this experience of shared, shared uh, grief and shared weakness and vulnerability that we all relate to because deep down we know, you know, the thing I like to say about disability is it's just, you know, it's a different degree of suffering. Uh, it's not a different kind of suffering. It's, it's kind of an exclamation point of, of, you know, the fact that we all have broken bodies deep down that, that, um, you know, that, uh, after you reach, you know, your mid twenties, it's a, it's a slow, steady decline to, to death. You know, you don't notice it quite uh, away, right away. Um, you know, I didn't uh, until I hit 40 and then 50, you know, and I'm feeling these pains and getting injured in a way I wasn't getting injured before. It's, it's all a harbinger of death. You know, that's, it's the one thing we, we know we're, we're not getting out of. So, um, you know, at the same time, at the same time, it was, of course, emblematic of, of um, the power of the cross, of the power of redemptive suffering. And, you know, we live in a world that likes to identify personal dignity with functionality. You know? You know, the, the more functional you are, the more you can contribute to society, correct? And thus, you know the more a full and integral member of society that you are. And if you can't, if you aren't very functional, if you're, if you're impaired in your functionality, you know, what, what are you? Uh, so we marginalize these people, we get rid of them, we snuff them out. I mean, my, my son, in one respect, he's kind of a poster boy for abortion. If, if, let's just say that in utero, we had known what 
kind of condition that he would come to have, you know, then this would be exhibit A of, of you know, of, of pro-abortion people saying the, the, the you know, the, the, uh, the importance of aborting the child. Because, of course, there's no meaning, no dignity in such a, such a, a frail and disabled condition. So when, after the, the Pope returned my son to my wife, you know what a lady said who was present in English? She said, your son is here to show us how to love. <laughs> you know, and um, so let me ask you, is there, is there any greater contribution my son could make to society than, than to be a lesson for love and to help us grow in love? And, you know, I, I can go on and on and on. And my family and just, um, you know, how he requires us to love better. Because he, what he requires of us is the sacrifice of our, of our will, self-denial. I mean, I, we have to plan everything around him. We, we, you know, someone has to be with him all the time. We get assistance, but, you know, uh, that's, that's just the way it is. And there are many things we don't do, we can't do as a family. Now, of course, in my sinfulness, I could easily dwell on that. You know, I could, I could easily envy others and begrudge them for goods that they get to enjoy that I can't because of these limits that are placed upon me. You know? Um, and thus the challenge, but the beauty of the cross, you know, to see this all in light of the cross, that this is such a gift. <laughs> he's a gift to us. He's, he's such a gift in himself. I mean, I really am convinced he's... I, I, I don't exaggerate and I, I, you know, I literally mean when I'm looking at him, I really believe I'm looking at the face of God in a way that, I mean, I'm looking at every face, you know, I'm looking at, I'm looking at the face of God, but more in him because he shares more profoundly in Christ's suffering on the cross. And, you know, to, to see what it's done to my children, you know, his siblings, you know, how caring they are for him, how, um, how considerate they are for him. And, and I mean, it's great, you know, I mean, it's they're, when they're on hand and when they're around they're you know, when he needs something, they all run to him immediately. They love them. They love him to death. So, um, you know, when my wife and I got married, this is not something I, I could have predicted. It's not something I would have chosen. Who would choose the cross? Lord, if this is how you treat your friends, the better you have so few. And yet, and yet, because of the cross of Christ, it's a sign of divine favor. This is the paradox. This makes sense only in light of the cross. You know, so that's why, I, you know, the, those scenes of Priam and Achilles with um, Aeneas and the, and, the, and the Greek warrior, you know, there's something beautiful about that, but at the same time, that pales in comparison to the cross. There's something much greater than a King Priam here. This just explodes. That goes so far beyond. So that without it, what real meaning is there? And yet with it, it's transformed. It's turned completely on its head. You know? So, I could say a lot more, but, yeah. Thank you for sharing. Um, one of the things that I was going to do was choose the cross, and I um, share a lot of things to do to choose the 
The poem Pearl. All right, so you know, written by the author of Gawain and the Green Knight. Um, so remember, so his daughter uh, Pearl or Margaret, probably, she died. She was what two years old. So then he has a vision, and she's one of the virgins in heaven. And um, he uh, he's mystified by this. Do you remember this? Yeah, he doesn't understand why she. She died without, um, you know, she, there was nothing volitional in her death, nothing volitional in her sharing in the cross. So what gives with her being, uh, you know, one of, these, one of these great virgins in heaven? And, you know, the answer given to him was, so what do you care? <laughs> what do you know? What do you understand? Surrender this to, to God's providence that uh, it's my prerogative to allow others to share in, in my cross and thus in my glory and my resurrected glory according to my will. And if you don't understand how that works, well, you know. Um, so even children then, even children. And, of course, this is the great... Um, you know, the, the great question of the bro Brothers Karamazov as well, you know, the suffering of children. Uh, and it's, you know, um, it, it's, it's, only, it's only in light of the cross that, that we have any hope here, any understanding, any meaning. And if it still, you know, perplexes us, still is difficult to understand, we just have to surrender, you know, that there is a, that there is a mystery that's beyond our understanding. And we'll, we, will, we will see it in its fullness when we behold God in his fullness. But here below, our understanding remains very veiled, remains very limited. And, you know, the, and it's the lesson of Job. You know, why, why, why is this happening, Lord? I don't understand. You know, and God's response to Job is, you know, was a reality check, kind of slapping around a little bit. Where were you when I created the world, you know? Maybe your understanding of things, you know, which is about like this and mine, <laughs> you know? Uh, you know, um, maybe you should just trust me. Maybe just trust in my providence. Maybe trust in my love, knowing full well that I order all things to their proper ends, including and especially suffering including and especially suffering when we don't understand it, when it continues to, to perplex us and frustrate us.
Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You ever see uh, the song of Bernadette? You know, it's so. This is a movie. Uh, it won the Academy Award for Best Picture. It, it's a story of uh, of um, our lead of Lords and Bernadette, and um, Bernadette becomes a nun. And she is, she's treated harshly by the, um, by the, the, um, she, what's the, um, the novice mistress, I think it's the novice mistress, who's jealous of her. And the novice mistress, there's this one scene where she says, uh, why should heaven have chosen you? I have suffered. I, my, she says, my eyes burn like the very fires of hell because of the sleep I deny them. Okay, it's kind of like what you're speaking up here. That, on the one hand, there is an extreme. One can go too far. And, you know, certainly the spiritual tradition has known aesthetical extremes. This is the great gift of the rule of Benedict. You know, that, that, um, that no, the life of self-denial still must be a life of, of, of tempered moderation. Okay, there is still the, you know, we still have bodies and we still must care for them. There is a, there is a divine moral mandate to care for our bodies within reason. And so we shouldn't harm them purposefully, unnecessarily. So there is, there, you know, there is a fine line there. That, so that's, that's thing number one. And thing number two, you know, I'm convinced crosses are always better when God gives them to us than when we choose them ourselves. Why? Because there's more of a sacrifice of the will that's involved when God chooses the cross versus being your own spiritual master when you choose the cross. So I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of, of God choosing. You know, like my son, I would, I would not have chosen that, and I would be free of it today if I could. I pray for his healing every day. I would, you know, I would love a miracle. <laughs> I would love a miracle. So, um, so yeah, there, there is an unhealthy extreme, and there is an unhealthy attitude that one can have, ironically, uh, with respect to suffering. And, and we need to be careful of that. Father? Thank you. I really appreciate the uh, kind of literary uh, lens mm. that you gave to suffering. And, uh, one thing that brought to mind, too, you use the phrase great suffering, but sometimes just when you think about it, the phrase how great is a lot of suffering, what that would mean. And uh, one thing that some people miss. I don't know, it seems like it has an interesting place in the Christian mission of you know, 
sinks, we have medieval sinks, which were great. We came very lowly, um, and princesses, kings, and uh, we think that you know, there might be a, there might be a way. Yeah, I, you know, it makes me think, uh, one time, Mother Teresa, she was giving a press conference, and, you know, she said, um, you know, holiness is not the privilege of, a few, of the few, it's the duty of all. So it, she said, it doesn't matter whether you are a prince, you know, sitting on a throne, or a poor person on the street, what matters is it's God who puts you there. It's God who puts you there. So whatever your state of life might be, it's, you know, it's the same duty. And what is greatness measured by by God other than by charity, ultimately? It's charity that, that determines one's, one's greatness in the eyes of God. And, and, you know, here, I mean, you know, there's no male or female. There's no Jew or Greek. There's no king or pauper. pauper. It's, it's, we're, we're all one in Christ. And we all can share equally and we all can, can grow exceedingly great in charity um you know so it's um there is something though about about you know persons who uh, at least on a worldly level uh enjoy a high station in life when they're made to suffer that that you know that does that does strike us you know in a way that just a a you know a surf say who suffers doesn't, um, you know, or the poverty, you know, the poverty of, of, of a Francis of Assisi, because, you know, because it was so exceedingly volitional on his, on his part, because, you know, he had a life of affluence that he did give up. If he didn't have that affluence, well, you know, would it have, would his embrace of poverty been as profound as it was? He was giving up more, you know. So there is something to be said for that, I think. Yeah, right. So there's a spectrum here. There are degrees. Uh, again, I'm, I'm, I think of the good thief next to Christ on the cross who says, this is what I deserve. You know, he recognizes exactly what you're saying. This is not just, it is unjust that you are crucified. It's just that I'm crucified. 
But then he says, you know, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So uh, in a sense, he's recognizing that he's doing penance, you know. And uh, so, yeah, there is that side of it. Um, the punishment, punishment is suffering when it's penance. And it's, by the way, the same reason for the, the doctrine of the one mystic person, incidentally, uh, helps us understand why that why the penance that we're required and asked to do, say when we go to the sacrament of confession, it doesn't have to amount to much, which you might have often considered when you're asked to do three Hail Marys, say, you know, <laughs> based on what I just confessed, you know, that's all you need. That's not the point, because your penance would never suffice on its own. It's because it gets piggybacked onto Christ's penance. He does penance for our sake, though he doesn't have to. Um, though he's not guilty of sin himself, he nonetheless willingly takes on our suffering as penance. So we, you know, so our penance participates in his. Um, so, yeah, the the important the important thing is, you know, let let God determine this. Let God um, give it over to God, uh, and unite it with you know reunite it with Christ. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And um, you know, I think personally, I think the great saints, I often think with respect to my son, people with special needs, disabilities are the great saints among us because they're being at, they are asked to participate in a very profound way in Christ's cross. The greater the suffering, the greater the participation in the redemptive power of Christ's cross. Some suffer more than others, whether it's what they deserve or not. Um, let God determine, let God judge, you know, but let it, let it be a means to the sanctification and the redemption of us, of us all. I hope that helps.